You're listening to City on a Hill DFW Sermon Podcast. For more information about our church or to support these ministries, visit us at cityonahilldfw.com. All right, well, good morning. Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 2. I think it is fitting that on the final Sunday before we begin our four-week Advent series in what will be for uh, many of you the busiest month of the year, we are talking this morning about the importance of rest. Who doesn't love rest? And not just any kind of rest, a very specific kind of rest, a new kind of rest, if you will. Rest is one of those things that I think many of us desperately need and yet struggle to embrace. It's Funny to me that as I think back on how difficult the year 2020 was for so many people, uh, with all the uncertainty and sickness and angst and, and just a, a lot of change that was not good, one of the interesting things that I've noticed over the last couple of years is how when people talk about the year 2020, there's almost a nostalgia about how slow things became. Like when everything shut down, life slowed way down. The busyness came to a screeching halt. And as hard as that year was, I, don't, I certainly don't want to downplay that for, for many people personally. It's one aspect that I think we look back on with a lot of fondness. For us, we recorded the messages on Thursday morning. James and I did. We recorded the worship Thursday night for the couple month period that we were uh, not open and we would edit it on Friday and then Saturday would roll around and then Sunday would roll around. I would go live on Facebook and then the message, the worship service would, would go live at 10.30. That was back when we had the 9 and 10.30 services and it would go live at 10.30. We didn't have classes. Schools weren't open. Most public places shut down. And we just spent a lot of time in our backyard playing with our kids, reading, watching movies, slowing down. And as difficult as that year was, and, and as glad as I am that things have picked back up and that the church survived. I mean, we didn't even know if the church was going to make it, you know, if, if any churches were going to make it. We, we were barely at 100 people when we came back from the pandemic, and we're, we are averaging now uh, around 5, 550 in the worship services today. So God has been working and growing, and it's amazing. Part of myself, part of my own thoughts towards that year, as I know is true for many of you, I, I look back with fondness on the slowness of life, if for no other reason than it, that it provided an easier pathway to rest. Uh, it's hard to make myself rest. It's hard for me to sit down and do nothing. I have a lot of ideas and goals and things that I'm always trying to work towards. I, I, I very rarely slow down unless I kind of am forced to. And, and so it's very difficult for me to just sit down and not think about like the next thing that I want to accomplish, the next thing that I want to do. And yet the Bible is so clear about the importance of rest for human beings. Rest is not only one of the most important commandments in scripture, it's one of the oldest commandments in Scripture. In fact, it may be the oldest commandment in Scripture. Uh, most of our commandments come from God through the prophet Moses uh, in first the Ten Commandments and then the, the later laws that develop in the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. Commandment to rest is actually not established in Moses' teaching, but in creation itself. So Genesis chapter 1 
describes the six days of creation. God makes everything, right? Light, sun, moon, stars, the land, the sea, the heavens, all of the things that dwell on the land and the sea and the heavens, culminating in his final greatest act in creation, wherein he makes man and woman in his own image. It's this beautiful, powerful story of God's creative power on display for all to see. And then we get to Genesis chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, and it says this, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. And so God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God worked for six days, and he rested on the seventh day. And this sets the precedent for our need, as well as all of creation's need to rest as well, and for what eventually becomes uh, the, the basis upon the Sabbath is built. The Sabbath, the seventh day of the week, in the Jewish calendar, this would have been a Saturday, or as the 1976 rock and roll band, the Bay City Rollers, would have said, S-A-T-U-R-D-A. No? No one? <laughs> you need to culture yourselves, is what I'm saying, all right? If you're going to follow me here, you need to culture yourselves. Sabbath, Saturday, a day of rest. And on this day, the people of God rested from the previous six days of work. And this is not optional. This is a commandment of God. It's first mentioned actually before the Ten Commandments in Exodus 16, 23. It says, this is what Yahweh has commanded. Tomorrow is a day of solemn rest, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over lay aside to be kept until the morning. No baking, no boiling, because you rest on the Sabbath day. This commandment does eventually make its way into the Ten Commandments, doesn't it? Exodus 20, verse 8. It becomes the fourth commandment. It says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. So understand the Sabbath is an extremely important day for Jewish people. As time goes on, the Sabbath becomes an extremely burdensome day for the Jewish people. Because more and more rules begin to be added to how to define what it means to remember the Sabbath day. What does that really mean? God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. What does that actually mean, practically speaking? What can I do and can't I do in order to still be obedient to God's commandment in the Ten Commandments? Can I walk my dog? Or is that work or is that not work? Can I tie my shoes? What if my shoe comes untied? Is it work to tie my shoe? Like, where, where's the line, right? What is and is not okay? These are the questions that are being asked. And so rabbis were increasingly adding rules or guardrails to bring clarity to what it means to properly observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath is central to life in the Old Testament. And it is central to our text this morning in Mark chapter 2. Here's our objective this morning. I want to unpack the text and walk through what's going on in Mark 2 to understand the Old Testament backdrop that Mark 2 sits against to understand kind of just what's happening in that passage. And then I want to come back at the end and I want to talk about what this means for us today because there are some differences. We're going to be talking about the Sabbath for the people in Mark 2. The Sabbath for the people in Mark 2 look a little different than the Sabbath in our, our modern world or, or in the church age, if you want to call it that. There are some differences. And I'm going to leave you with four takeaways to help you think more clearly and effectively about the Sabbath personally. Sound good? 
Let's begin. If you have your Bibles, if it doesn't sound good, it's too bad. This is what we're doing. Uh, if you have your Bibles, open to Mark 2, verses 23 and 24 is where we're starting. It says, One Sabbath, he was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? So our text begins on a Sabbath day. It's a Saturday. It's a day of rest. Remember last week we talked about how the disciples often do things that sort of set them apart, make them look different than the rest of the people in the world. How particularly last week they, they don't fast. Everybody else is fasting. The disciples of Jesus don't fast. Here's another example of the kind of attention they receive for doing things that is countercultural to their context. It's the Sabbath. It's Saturday. Everyone else is resting. What do they do? They are controversially like heathens in the grain field picking grain. And so the Pharisees come to Jesus and they question him concerning his disciples' conduct. What do your disciples think they're doing, Jesus? It's Saturday. Why are they in the grain field picking grain? Now, I say this almost every week, I will continue to say this almost every week, in order to understand why this is a problem, we've got to understand the Old Testament perspective here. Not only on the Sabbath, but specifically on harvesting grain, because that's what they're doing. That's the issue that's at hand. In Exodus 34, 21, you get a specific prohibition against harvesting on the Sabbath. It says, six days you shall work, but on the seventh day you shall rest in plowing and in harvest, you shall rest. So plowing and harvesting, understand this, are considered works that are not permissible on the Sabbath. Not by the Pharisees' rules, but according to God's law. So this issue that the Pharisees are raising with Jesus, they're not wrong here. This is a problem. The, the law clearly prohibits harvesting. So the issue here is, is not what they're doing, it's whether or not what they're doing is technically harvesting. Is it technically harvesting? Because the law states that if you pick grain with your hands, maybe it's not harvesting. Deuteronomy 23, 25, it says, if you go into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the ears with your hand, but you shall not put a sickle to your neighbor's standing grain. So in, understand this, in the Old Testament, there's a distinction between harvesting grain, which you would require tools to do, you would need a sickle for that, and picking grain with your hands. They're different things. They're not the same thing. So this sets up a debate of sorts. Are the disciples of Jesus breaking the Sabbath by harvesting grain? Is what they're doing actually harvesting grain at all? So the Pharisees come to Jesus. They want him to weigh in on this very controversial issue. Are they or are they not breaking the Sabbath? Look at Jesus' response, verse 25 and 26. And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the bread of the presence, which it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him? What in the world is Jesus talking about here? It's a simple question, Jesus. What are they doing? Why are they harvesting grain? Why are you talking about David all of a sudden? 1 Samuel 21, the bread of the presence. What, what is happening? I don't want you to miss what's happening here. The Pharisees are looking for Jesus to weigh in on this debate, whether or not his disciples are technically breaking the Sabbath. And he has absolutely no interest in answering this question because it's the wrong question. 
They're asking the wrong question. They are asking, why are your disciples violating the law of the Sabbath? And Jesus is going to take that question and turn it over on its head and ask, why are your laws of the Sabbath violating my disciples? In verses 25 to 26, Jesus is referencing a story in 1 Samuel chapter 21. In, in 1 Samuel 21, David, King David, we all hopefully, most of us aware of King David, one of the most important people in the Old Testament, the most important king for sure in the Old Testament, he has not yet ascended the throne in 1 Samuel 21. If you remember David's story, David is anointed as a young man prior to becoming king. He's anointed king, but Saul is still technically the king in Israel. And so David comes into to Saul's service. He serves as one of Saul's closest men. He fights in Saul's army. Remember, he kills Goliath at one point. He becomes dear friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. At some point along the way, David grows in popularity, especially after him killing Goliath. Remember, it says that Saul kills thousands and David his tens of thousands. People think that David is like this wonder boy, right? Next big thing. And so Saul begins to grow jealous of him and eventually tries to kill him in a fit of rage, actually several times. And so David flees eventually. He runs, him and a group of his loyal men who are loyal to David. At this point in 1 Samuel 21, he and his loyal men are on the run. Saul's men are in pursuit of him, and he and his men are starving. They have no food. They have no supplies. And so in 1 Samuel 21, 1, it says that David came to the priest and asked the, bread, or asked the priest for some bread to eat so that they would not starve. And the priest's response is strange if you don't understand priestly language in the Old Testament. He says, we don't have any common bread. The only bread we have is the bread of the presence. Now, what on earth is the bread of the presence? The bread of the presence, or the bread of the face, it's kind of a Hebraic expression that, that indicated that this was bread that was placed on the altar before the face of God as an offering on the Sabbath day. The, 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 the priest would take the bread, they would put it on the altar, it was made as an offering. After the Sabbath, once it had been uh, offered as the bread of the presence, the only people authorized to eat the bread were the priests, right? That's what Jesus is referring to in verse 26. He says, it is not lawful for any but the priest to eat it. So this creates a problem, doesn't it? The bread is only for the priests. David and his starving friends are not priests. They're not Levites. But here's the catch. The priest gives them the bread anyways because they would otherwise starve. It's a strange story. Why does Jesus bring that up? Come back to Mark 2. He's making a point about the law. In 1 Samuel 21, when it comes down to choosing between observing the law, which meant not allowing non-priests to eat the bread, or violating the law, which would mean David and his friends potentially dying of starvation, the priests, hear this, choose life over law. This is the argument Jesus is engaging with. He doesn't really care in this moment whether or not they are technically harvesting grain. What he cares about is how the laws of the Sabbath had become more of a burden to the people of God than a blessing. He cares about life over law. The Sabbath was a day where you were to cease from your working on Sunday through Friday, you work. Saturday on the Sabbath, you put all of that aside and you rest. And the whole point was that you were to be rejuvenated. 
right? It wasn't intended to be a burdensome day. It was intended to relieve your burdens. It wasn't intended to press the people down. It was intended to build the people up. That's Jesus' whole point. Verse 27 and 28, he says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Man, in other words, was not created to serve the Sabbath. The Sabbath is created to serve man. To say it more simply, you could say it this way. The Sabbath is meant for our good. That's the point. That's the purpose of it. It's meant for your good. It's not a burden. It's a blessing. But let's take this a little bit further here. There's a principle here underlying all of this that's very important for us to understand that conveys something about the value of life in the heart of God. This passage in 1 Samuel 21 reveals the intended purpose of the law, not just the law of the Sabbath, but the law in general. There's something here about the intended purpose of the law that you need to understand, which is this, that the law is always meant to benefit life, not tear it down. When we think about the law in the New Testament context, we think about it as a burdensome thing that sort of crushes us, right, under the weight of, of, of our inability to perfectly keep it. The law is only burdensome when we begin to try to extract righteousness from it. So when you look to the law in order to sort of prove to God your righteous value, it will be a burden because you will realize in not even five minutes of trying, you've already failed, you're incapable of keeping the law perfectly. That's why you need a savior in Jesus who can keep it perfectly. So it is burdensome when you try to extract righteousness from it. But get this, the law is intended to bring life, not take away from it. It's intended to benefit, not diminish. It's intended to prove, improve, not tear down. So whenever the law not only doesn't benefit human life, but actually puts human life at risk, the higher value is life over law. The priest had a choice between preserving life and preserving law by allowing them to eat or only keeping it for the priests. And they choose life over law. Life is the higher value. This is as an aside, just as a side note, one of the chief reasons why I'm unapologetically pro-life. Because I believe scriptures teach plainly in the heart of God, revealed through the text, God's great value that he places upon all human life. Human beings are made in God's image. We're stewards of his creation. We're the objects of his love that motivate him to take upon himself human flesh and die in our place that we might what? Live. Human life is very important to God. It struck me this week, the irony of this, what is happening in the world today with regard to abortion. And I want you to think about this just for a minute. People are willing to create laws in order to violate human life. God is willing to have his law violated in order to save human life. It's fundamentally opposite. One of the earmarks of a nation or a people governed by the prince of darkness, by Satan, are laws that fundamentally contradict the heart of God. How do you know when a nation or a people have been blinded by the prince of darkness? They begin to create laws that actually move in opposition to who Jesus is. That's all I'll say about that right now. 
He who has ears, let him hear. Sabbath is meant for our good. Something just fell. All right. I thought somebody was coming up here. <laughs> Sabbath just... Sabbath is meant for our good. But there's more to the story. That's not all there is to say about the Sabbath. Keep reading. Mark chapter 3. Look how much progress we're making, by the way. We're already in chapter 3. It was a slow start, admittedly, but we're getting there. We're making it. Sometime by 2026, we'll be done with Mark. Verses 1 and 2. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Again, the passage begins on a Sabbath day. Jesus is in the synagogue. There is a man there, it says, with a withered hand or a stiffened hand. Some of your translations may say that. This is just a way of saying that his hand doesn't work, needs to be healed. And again, the Pharisees are watching Jesus very closely to see if he's going to actually heal this man so that they can accuse him of breaking the Sabbath because healing is considered a work and you're not supposed to work on this day. I mean, this just shows you how far off base the Pharisees had gotten. The Sabbath is meant for our good, right? We just established that. How can healing be for anything other than our good? So Jesus responds in verses 3 and 4, and, and he sets the perfect trap, the perfect trap for his opponents. It says, and he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life, or to kill, but they were silent. There's no good way to answer this if you're a Pharisee, and, and they know it. There's, there's nowhere to go. If you say that Sabbath is meant for good, you have to be okay with him healing the man with a withered hand because healing is a good thing. Everybody knows that. If you say that the Sabbath is meant for evil, the people are going to revolt against you because you've just called God's most holy day evil. There's no way out of this. This is a checkmate moment, and they know it, and they remain silent. And then look at verses 5 and 6. And he looked around at them with anger. Jesus is angered by this. This angers Jesus, that they are unwilling to permit him to heal a person on the Sabbath. What must it feel like for Jesus to look at you with anger? No thank you. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out and his hand was restored. And so the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. We're barely into chapter three and already the religious leaders are planning to kill Jesus. Why? Because he healed somebody on the Sabbath day. That does it for them. Can't have this guy hanging around. Heaven forbid, healing people on the Sabbath. Now come back for a moment. Let's talk about how the Sabbath is meant for our good. I don't want you to miss what Jesus is doing here because there's something else being conveyed in a roundabout way that is equally important to this. His whole point is that if the Sabbath is meant for our good, and it is, then healing should be permissible because to heal is to do good. They're the same thing. He asks... Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? It's either one or the other. There are no in-betweens. There's no neutral zone. There's no gray area. You are either doing good or you are doing harm. To do nothing is to do harm. So Jesus understand this. This is what he's establishing here. 
is that healing is a work that's not only permissible on the Sabbath, it's a requirement on the Sabbath. To not heal would be to do harm. To not heal would be to do evil. You are if you can heal, then you are required to heal because healing is a good thing and the Sabbath is meant for good. Sabbath is a day to rest from your work on Sunday through Friday. It is not a day to rest from everything. There are things, in other words, that are not only permitted on the Sabbath, but are expected on the Sabbath for the benefit of others around you. So here's another way of saying this. Here's the truth. The Sabbath is meant for our good, and our good is meant for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant for our good, and our good is meant for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is meant not only to rest and the goodness of God, but to reflect the goodness of God to other people. It's not a day to do nothing. It's not a day to just sit on your couch and watch TV. You absolutely should sit on your couch and watch TV some, but it's not only for that. The Sabbath is a day to rest from your work. It's not a day to rest from any activity and all activity. You shouldn't fill your mind with the things that you need to do for work on the Sabbath day. You should fill your mind with the things that God has done on your behalf on the Sabbath day. You shouldn't seek to do the next project on your list to get ahead of schedule. You should seek to do good for other people. The Sabbath is meant for your good, but your good is also meant for the Sabbath. Now, the looming question on the table that I know many of you are thinking is, when is the Sabbath? When are we doing this? Is it still Saturdays? Is it on Sundays now? Is this the Sabbath? I mean, what, what are, how do we make sense of this? Truthfully, the New Testament does not prescribe a day. It doesn't prescribe a day. In fact, of the Ten Commandments, the Fourth Commandment is the only one that's never explicitly restated in the entire, entirety of the New Testament. The New Testament has very little to say about the Sabbath, but there are a couple of things that the New Testament is clear about concerning the Sabbath that indicate how we ought to, as Christians, think about this today. Let me give them to you. First, the Sabbath requirements, key word there, the Sabbath requirements are fulfilled in Christ. So as I mentioned, uh, it's the fourth commandment is the only commandment that's never explicitly restated. And, and the reason behind this is because the requirements of this law are fulfilled in the work of Christ. In Colossians chapter 2, Paul talks about the ways in which we are set free from the demands of the law. Verse 16, he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. Everything mentioned in here are requirements of the law in the Old Testament that you are intended to do at various points throughout the day, week, or year. So you're required to attend, for example, various festivals that commemorated God's provision to his people throughout redemptive history. And you see some of these festivals still being carried out in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. So for example, in John chapter 7, uh, John mentions the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. 
the Festival of Tabernacles. This was a, a yearly, an annual festival that the people of God were required to go to if they were able to, to attend, wherein they commemorated God's provision to his people in this wonderful ritual where it, it all kind of ended with the priest taking these basins of water and pouring them out, signifying God's provision of his spirit and a whole host of other things. Jesus comes to the Feast of Booth in John 7, knowing that there is water being poured out, and he says, I give you living water that if you drink from it, you'll never thirst. Ooh. In the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, you get another one, the festival of Pentecost. The whole issue of, of tongues and languages and people hearing in their own language and all this stuff that's happening. The question is, why are all these people who speak different languages there? It's because the festival of Pentecost is taking place. So people would come from various nations, all of whom were Jews, to come and worship they were required to do so. Paul talks about food laws, what you eat and drink. He talks about new moons. He talks about Sabbaths. These are all things you're required to do. And Paul's whole point in Colossians 2 is that because of the finished work of Christ, the requirements, or what Paul calls the legal demands of the law, have been nailed to the cross. So it's not that these things don't matter anymore. It's that they're no longer required because they've been fulfilled in the perfect work of Jesus and imparted to you, given to you, upon belief in the reception of his spirit. So he says, don't let people judge you when you have a bacon sandwich with a side of shrimp, right? Don't let people judge you when you don't upkeep the Sabbath. These things are no longer required anymore. The, the, the requirements have been fulfilled in the work of Jesus. And second, Sabbath rest is found in Christ. So Sabbath requirements are fulfilled in Christ. Sabbath rest is found in Christ. So the only other place you get Sabbath language really is in Hebrews 4. Hebrews 4 makes the argument that as Christians, your ultimate rest, hear this, is found not in a day, but in a person the person of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 4.3 says, for we who believed enter that rest. There's no greater rest, in other words, than the rest we find in the forgiveness of sins and eternal life in Christ. In the same way last week how we said that fasting is no longer necessary because it doesn't provide for you anything beyond what Jesus has already provided for you, the Sabbath is the same. It cannot provide anything for you rest-wise beyond what Christ has provided for you. The rest in Jesus is the ultimate rest. It's the eternal rest. Christ is our Sabbath rest. This is almost certainly one of the reasons why early in the early church, in the book of Acts, the early church stops gathering on Saturdays, on the Sabbath day, and begins gathering on Sundays, the Lord's day. Because the requirement is no longer binding. And Jesus rose from the dead, not on a Saturday, but on a Sunday, Jesus was dead on Saturday. Incidentally, I have not given this to any other service, so this is free for you. It just came to my mind, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, if you remember the Holy Week descriptions, you have like Maundy Thursday, you know, Ash Wednesday, Ash Monday. I can't remember. We're not Catholics. What is it? Wednesday. Wednesday. Yeah. Maundy Thursday. Good Friday. What's Saturday? It's actually called Black Saturday or Black Sabbath. That's where they get the name. It's free. That was worth the price of admission right there. Yeah. Jesus doesn't rise on a Sabbath. He rises on Sunday. 
So we gather on Sunday, the Lord's day, still, because Christ is our Sabbath rest. We gather on his day to enjoy the rest we have in him, to reflect his goodness to others as we gather. So understand, though the requirements are no longer binding, we still have a Sabbath rest. Sabbath is still important to us important to us. It's established at creation. God rested after six days of work and all of creation rests accordingly. It's that the legal demands of the Sabbath established by Moses are no longer binding on God's people because those things are fulfilled in Christ. So that means, here's what this means. We, we gather now no longer as a requirement, no longer as a burden, but because it's good for us. It's good for us. That's why Hebrews 10.25 says, don't neglect to meet together as is the habit of some, but encourage one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. We gather to encourage one another, to exhort one another, to edify one another, to build one another up, to serve one another, to worship with one another, to heal with one another, to rest with one another. So with that said, let's close with this. Four quick things to keep in mind when you come to church on Sunday, the Lord's Day to enter into Sabbath rest in Christ. Four ways to improve your Sunday experience when you come to church. Here's the first one. Don't just watch, attend. Don't just watch, attend. The church gathering is not a spectacle to be viewed. It is a gathering of which you are a part. You are meant to be with God's people in person. Listen to me. When you treat church like a convenience, it will quickly begin to inconvenience you when other things come up. The online platform is great. I love the online platform. I think we are blessed. I'm grateful for the technology God has given us to, to do what we do online. And it has been a blessing for those who are sick, for those who are, are physically incapable of being here, for those who are traveling and want to not miss what's happening in the life of their church. We love that. It is awesome. It is an awesome tool to have. It is a terrible substitute for the real thing. So don't just watch, but attend. Number two, don't just rest, reflect. Don't just rest, reflect. When you come to church, you should absolutely use this as a time to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. But don't just rest in it, reflect it to other people. Allow the work of Jesus to not only be seen and felt inwardly, but to be seen and felt outwardly. That means practically when you come to church, don't come in avoiding people or you go and get your coffee and write and... No, that does not reflect the love of Jesus at all. Now, you're allowed to have your bad days. I get that. We have them. It's fine. You're forgiven. You don't, you don't need to put on a mask. But, but change the way you think about this as a whole. When you come in, come ready to, to encourage, to show kindness, to demonstrate love and warmth to the people who are also here. Number three, don't just sing worship. Don't just sing, but worship. As you rest and reflect in the goodness of God, that should inspire a gratitude towards God that is intended to be expressed through worship. This is one of the reasons, if I'm just being completely honest with you, which apparently I am today, you get all the, all the unfiltered stuff. One of the reasons why I grow tired of the arguments about style when it comes to worship, right? I don't like fast songs. I don't like slow songs. 
I don't like new songs. I don't like old songs. I don't like hymns. I want more hymns. Whenever people complain like that, I like to say, it's a good thing we're not singing these songs for you. These songs aren't meant for you. They're meant for Jesus. They're meant for Jesus. It's a, it's, we're missing the point. The songs that we sing in the church are only as good as their ability to convey worship to a risen Savior. That's the purpose. That's the purpose of music. There are songs I don't like. There are songs I wish did different things. I, I, I leave that at the door because it's not the point. I'm not here to, for a concert. I can do that on YouTube or in real life. On Spotify, there's a lot of ways I can listen to music I like. I come here to worship the risen Savior. So when you come to church, don't just sing the songs that you like. Worship the God who saves. Don't just watch, attend. Don't just rest, reflect. Don't just sing, worship. Last, don't just take, give. The church is a place with resources that are intended to benefit and bless you spiritually, emotionally, and even physically. And so when you come to church, take advantage of these things. It blows my mind when I see people come to church for months and sometimes years and only ever come into the worship service and never go to a group or a class or, or in any other capacity that we offer. It's like being in a long buffet full of wonderful food and getting like French fries, right? So just be clear, I'm the French fries in this category. There's other food on the buffet that's intended, that's, it's for you. It's been laid out for you. Enjoy it. But also understand, the church is not just for taking, but also giving. It's more like a potluck, right? So participate by giving. Give your time through service. There are so many places in this church to plug in and begin serving. The host team, Bible studies, life groups, outreach, kids ministry, student ministry, there are tons of places where you can plug in and begin to serve. Some of you need to serve the body. You give your time through service, and you give your money through ministry. The church right now, this, this may shock some of you, because we, we really don't talk about this. The church right now is actually undergiving the budget. We are not meeting budget right now. We're not way off, but we are undergiving, and it is impacting what we're planning on doing next. We had a few things that we've had to change, because we realize we're not where we need to be financially to be able to do those things. I don't talk about money that often. I don't intend to talk about money that often. City on a Hill has always been a very generous church in the 16 years that I've been here. But giving is a learned discipline. It is a learned practice that you as a Christian need to be instructed to do just like any other learned discipline. We have some of our most faithful givers in this church who are moving into retirement. And they're no longer able to give the amount that they used to give because their retirement doesn't allow them to do that. And we've been saying for probably 15 years now that especially the millennial families and younger, y'all are the next wave, you're the next wave of leadership, you're going to be the, the ones doing this one day. That day is here. It, we're here. We need our younger families to step up. We need our newer families to step up a little bit. So can I appeal to you? If you're not currently giving on a weekly basis, would you prayerfully consider doing so? But in whatever means you are able, if the, if the ministries of City on a Hill have blessed you or impacted you in some meaningful way, would you consider not just receiving ministry from here, but also contributing to it? This is what Sabbath rest looks like, right? It's not just resting in the goodness of God. It's also reflecting it to other people. It's not just watching. It's, it's participating. It's attending. It's being in person. 
It's not just singing songs we like. It's worshiping the God of all creation. And it's not just receiving from the ministries, but it's also giving to them as well. It's a day meant for your good and a day for which your good is meant. And when you engage in Sabbath rest in this way, you walk out, I promise you, you walk out on Sunday mornings feeling more fulfilled and more rejuvenated because you're a part of something that is eternally valuable, that matters. And one needs to only look around the room briefly to see some of the lives drastically impacted and changed for the better as a result of what's happening here. So join, participate, be a part, rest, but also reflect. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the rest that we have in Jesus. The work of the ministry carried out by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We can see it. It's so clear. Lives transformed, changed. Sins erased, forgiven. Habits broken. People freed from the bondage of the things that have drug them down their whole lives. Begin to actually walk in purpose and power in your spirit as you call them towards you, as you call them out of darkness and into light. We thank you for that. We thank you for the time on Sundays where no matter what is happening in our lives, work, stress, responsibility, all of those things, they don't go away, but God, we set them aside. We rest from them in who you are and what you've done through your son, Jesus. We participate in the body of Christ because we are a part of the body of Christ. The church is not a place we go. It is who we are. And so we confess, God, we need your rest. We need your Sabbath rest. We long for that day in eternity where we stand in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. But until God that time comes, we stand in the rest we have in your presence through your Holy Spirit. So would you fill us up that we may go back out into the world this next week as lights into darkness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.